Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Game plan. President Biden tests out a re-election message. Let the people know who did it for them. But what can his party accomplish without control of the House? House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries joins me exclusively next. And crime and punishment. Concerns about crime contribute to a Democratic mayor's loss. And now the president sides with Republicans on blocking a local D.C. criminal justice law. Are Democrats vulnerable on crime ahead of 2024? I'll speak exclusively to New York City Mayor Eric Adams in moments. Plus, sidestepping Trump, dueling Republican events as some White House hopefuls look for a lane around the former president. I am your justice, and I am your retribution. Will it be harder than they think? Former Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson will join me ahead. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in New York this morning, where our State of the Union is gearing up. This weekend, we are beginning to see messages for both parties take shape ahead of the 2024 presidential campaign. Half a dozen Republican hopefuls, including former President Trump, spoke at dueling political events this weekend, jabbing each other over government spending and cultural issues. As many in the GOP look for a way to bypass Donald Trump, even as polls show he is still the man to beat. We also saw President Biden preview his likely campaign message, urging Democrats at a party conference to focus on their successes over the last two years in a time of newly divided government. While his party faced new, urgent new questions about crime in traditionally Democratic big cities as Democrats hope to flip the House and regain unified control in 2024. Here with me now is House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Thank you so much. It's great to see you here. Uh, House Democrats were in Baltimore this week, and you all were laying out a strategy for the next two years. I want you to listen to something that President Biden told your retreat this week. If we did nothing, nothing, but implement what we've already passed and let the people know who did it for them, we win. So, Mr. Leader, he's talking about 2024, but frankly, it also sounds like kind of a tacit admission that Democrats are not going to be able to get as much done now because you're in the minority in the House. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Listen, House Democrats are unified. President Biden was dignified and our base is electrified for three reasons. One, we have an incredible track record of support uh, for getting big things done to make life better for everyday Americans. Uh, we have a vision for the future. Uh, we're going to continue to put people over politics to fight for lower costs and better paying jobs and safer communities, defend democracy, fight for reproductive freedom and build an economy from the middle out uh, and the ground up as opposed to the top down, which is what Republicans have tried to do for decades. And we present a clear contrast with the extreme MAGA Republicans who are out of touch and out of control. 
So you talk about unity. Uh, I want to ask you about something that happened this past week. Showed some pretty stark divisions in your Democratic Party because President Biden unexpectedly, uh, unexpectedly rather, announced that he's going to sign a Republican effort to override a new crime reform bill in Washington, D.C. 173 House Democrats, including yourself, voted against that GOP bill. And in large part, that was because you believe that the White House signaled that the president would oppose it. So did President Biden pull the rug out from under you and your fellow House Democrats? Uh, Not at all. We have a House, we have a Senate, uh, and then we have the White House. In terms of my particular reasons for voting the way that I did. One, I believe that local government should have control over local matters. Uh, And that's a principle that I've supported from the moment that I arrived in Washington, D.C. It's one of the reasons why I believe in D.C. statehood. Uh, And in this particular case, I voted to affirm local rule. Right. But the Democratic president is signaled that he doesn't agree with that and he's going to sign a Republican bill to override what you just described. Are you okay with that? Well, let's take it one step at a time. We have to see what happens uh, in the United States Senate next week. Uh, Depending on what the Senate does, the president will have to respond one way or the other. I haven't had an opportunity to talk to the White House yet about the president's views, so I'm not going to characterize his position one way or the other until we've had a chance to talk about that issue. I mean, he's made it clear. It's not unless he changes his tune again. Well, there are public conversations and there are private conversations. So you think you're going to be able to have a private conversation. What I do know is that Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton has said she looks forward to talking to President Biden about his position. They may agree to disagree. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's fine, uh, because on the big picture issues in fighting to build an economy that really does work for everyday Americans, we will remain unified, particularly as compared to the extremism that we're seeing on the other side of the aisle. Okay, you're the Democratic leader. I obviously am not. If I'm hearing from frustrated House Democrats, I can't imagine what you're hearing. They feel like the White House, again, pulled the rug out from under them. You have to be hearing that. Well, that actually has not been the sense that I've gotten. I think coming out of uh, the issues conference, we are incredibly unified about the way forward. When we talk about putting people over politics... Uh, That is not just a slogan. It's a way of life for us. It's what we've done. It's the reason why we were able to pass historic legislation to save the economy, to invest in infrastructure, to bring manufacturing jobs back home to the country, to do something about the climate and the environment and prescription drug prices. On this issue, then we can move on. Would it be a mistake for President Biden to sign this bill overriding uh, the decision by a city that is 50 percent African-American on how to govern itself on the issue of crime? Well, I don't want to characterize what President Biden may or may not do. Well, would it be a mistake? Well, in response to something that the Senate has not even done yet, what I can say uh, is that I'll continue to support the principle of local government control over local matters. There are more than 700,000 people in the District of Columbia. They elect the city council. They elect the mayor. They can continue to work out those issues. Do you think that Part of this is the White House and some of those Senate Democrats you were talking about who are uh, worried about tough re-election campaigns, being worried about Democrats portrayed as soft on crime? No, actually, I think we have a strong record on the issue. We passed gun safety legislation over the objections of the NRA for the first time in 30 years that will save lives. 
We have to do more. Mm -hmm. We certainly have a vision for doing more, for banning weapons of war on our streets, for enacting universal criminal background check legislation, for investing in dealing with mental illness, as our gun safety legislation will do to the tune of $500 million. Uh, and so I think we can lean into this issue moving forward based on substance. You recently went down to the border. You had a, a firsthand experience uh, and, and saw the situation there. Uh, this is another area where President Biden has ruffled some feathers uh, in your party by rolling out measures to crack down on illegal border crossings and restrict migrants' ability to claim asylums. How do you feel about that policy? Well, I think uh, we've got to continue to do two things. One, make sure that we have a safe and secure border and take steps anchored in the principle that America is a nation of laws, while at the same time respecting the fact that we also are a nation of immigrants. Uh, and that part of the foundation of this country has been built on our tremendous diversity, on people coming from all over the world to work hard and pursue the American dream. So yes I, on the policy or no on the policy? Well, I actually, well, based on my visit to the border, what I have seen uh, is that some of the steps that President Biden and the administration have taken over the last few months have certainly reduced the flow of illegal border crossings. And also those who are seeking asylum now have the ability in a handful of countries, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Haiti, I believe, to sort of pursue those asylum claims while remaining in place or uh, in a transit country. I want to ask you, switching topics uh, for a second, about uh, Fox host Tucker Carlson, because he tweeted yesterday that he's going to begin airing some of the January 6th footage that he was given exclusive access to, he says, by Speaker McCarthy. Has this, as far as you know, been vetted by the Capitol Police? Because Speaker McCarthy vowed that he would allow that to happen before it aired. It's not clear to me yet that any material or footage uh, that any news personality at another network may have has been vetted, but it must absolutely be vetted before anything is released into the public domain. Uh, the January 6th insurrection was violent. Approximately 140 officers were seriously injured. A handful of officers died as a result of the events of the January 6th violent insurrection. There are serious security concerns with releasing footage into the public domain in an era where political violence is on the rise. And there are people, including the former president, who fan the flames of extremism. And you have no indication that the police have actually vetted that footage? I have no indication at this moment that the police uh, have vetted that footage. It is my hope and expectation that that will absolutely occur. But Dana, here's the more important issue. President Biden won the election. People on the extreme right know that President Biden won the election. But Donald Trump perpetrated a big lie. That big lie had real consequences. It led to and incited a violent insurrection. And it's that type of political extremism that we need to move beyond in America. And on that note, you and Senator Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, wrote a letter to Rupert Murdoch calling for Fox to stop spreading false election narratives and admit on the air that they were wrong to engage in such neglect, ne negligent behavior. Do you, as party leader, think that Democrats should refrain from going on Fox before that happens, that apology happens? No, I think what should happen right now is that everyone, whether it's on another network or whether it is just in the public domain, certainly in Congress, should refrain from perpetrating a big 
lie uh, because the big lie has consequences. And democracy is held together by some basic principles, such as free and fair elections and the peaceful transfer of power. Those things were undermined uh, and continue to be undermined by individuals, extreme MAGA Republicans, who continue to perpetrate the big lie, and it has to stop. Thank you so much, House Democratic Leader, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Appreciate it. Nice to be in your city here. Thank you. Great to be here with you. Thank you. And as Democrats try to craft their message on crime, a big city leader who's made it his focus, New York City Mayor Eric Adams will be here next. And last week, the RNC chair told me she thinks candidates should pledge to back the eventual GOP presidential nominee. Will they agree? I'll ask a potential GOP candidate coming up. Welcome back to State of the Union. As big city mayors come under increased pressure to make cities safer, New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced a sweeping new plan this week to better help mentally ill New Yorkers, improving their access to housing and treatment options and expanding the use of medical professionals rather than police to respond to mental health related 911 calls. Here with me now is New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Thank you so much. Jack, Appreciate you being here. Good to see you. So this new proposal, there is a lot in it. We just mentioned some of it. When will New Yorkers start to actually feel the impact of this? And also, how much will it cost them? Well, they are now. Uh, when you saw the first phase of our subway safety plan and our initiative to get those with serious mental health I issues uh, to the point that they were in danger to themselves and others, couldn't take care of their basic needs. People pushed back, but I was clear and I was focused. We started to see the removal of encampments on our subway system. 4,000 people we uh, brought inside for care. Over 1,000 remained. Some went to stay to families. Now we're moving to the next level. Young people with mental health issues, uh, substance abuse issues, and those with serious mental health issues. Um, partnering with the governor, uh, we're going to see over 8,000 units of uh, permanent housing with, with wraparound services. So, you're starting to see the results now. When will those new services, like the mobile units, uh, start to take effect? And again, how, how much will it cost? $20 million is a new introduction that we put in place with an unprecedented new way of using telemedicine for mental health. This is something brand new, has not been used before, of giving out fentanyl strips for those with substance abuse so they can test some of the drugs that they're take, taking, uh, treatment centers. Our new infusion of money is $20 million uh, to go with what we had already. You mentioned a previous plan that you put in place, a policy allowing first responders to commit people experiencing mental health crises without their consent. Yes. You alluded to this. Yes. It's a pretty controversial approach. And in your primary, you said it would, quote, demonize mentally ill people. So is this about doing what's best for people with mental illness or is it more about doing what's best for people who encounter them on the streets of New York City. And it was so important. The way it was reported uh, really was distorted. We stated that the new methods we were using was clarity. We were going after those with serious mental health illnesses that couldn't take care of their basic needs and were in danger to themselves. That is not the entire population. That's a small, targeted group. And it was inhumane to allow them to stay on the streets without proper care. Can, can you actually just 
give a little bit of nuance there. So let's say the police see somebody lying uh, in the street in Midtown, wearing disheveled clothing, maybe mumbling to themselves, not necessarily bothering anyone. Will that person be taken in for treatment against their will? No, that's about a conversation. That's about building up trust. We see it every day in the subway system, on our streets. It's about building up trust. You may have to visit them more than once, giving them socks, clothing, food. But if that same person has a, a stick in their hand, a knife in their hand, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're unkept, uh, they're clothing a soil. There's something wrong. Now, you don't wait until that person pushes someone on the subway system and then respond. No, we must be proactive to deal with this issue. I want to talk about what happened in Chicago this week. Your friend, <clears throat> Mayor Lori Lightfoot, she lost. She had a pretty big loss mm-hmm. in her reelection bid. You work closely together on a range of issues, particularly on questions of crime. That is an issue that dominated the election in Chicago. What is your takeaway from her loss? Well, I think all of our big cities, I like to say we have three parties, um, Democrat, Republicans and mayors. Uh, mayors, we are closer, we're the closest to the problems. And I stated on the campaign trail and in the city, public safety is a prerequisite to prosperity. Same in Chicago, like New York and many of our big cities across America. That is why we're zero focus, double digit decrease in shootings, double digit decrease uh, in homicides. We, we have witnessed this year. Uh, particularly in the month of February, all of our index crimes are low, low for the entire year. We are focused on public safety because people want to be safe. They don't feel safe and they are actually safe. Then you're going to lose control of your city. Is what happened to her a warning sign for you here in New York? <laughs> to the contrary. I think it's a warning sign for the country. Uh, Eric Adams has been talking about public safety, not only on the co- campaign trail, uh, but for the first year. I showed up at crime scenes. I knew what New Yorkers were saying, and I saw it all over the country. I think, if anything, it is really stating that this is what I have been talking about. America, we have to be safe. The question sort of on the flip side of this is some of the data you talked about. NYPD shows that some crimes like assault and car theft rose slightly in February compared to other crime in the past. Overall crime is down here in New York City. But you also have people like former Congressman Mondaire Jones, who will actually be on the show later. He says that the rhetoric that you talk about a lot with regard to crime kind of feeds the narrative and helps Republicans (laughs) make the point that uh, there is too much crime and that hurts Democrats. You know know the difference between a comment like that and what I say? I listen to Americans and New Yorkers. The polls were clear. New Yorkers felt unsafe and the numbers show that they were unsafe. Now, if we want to ignore what the everyday public is stating, then that's up to them. I'm on the subways. I walk the streets. I speak to everyday working class people and they were concerned about safety. We zeroed in on that unprecedented historic numbers of felony arrests, removal of guns on our streets, closing homicide cases. We have a recidivism problem in New York and far too many people, there's about 2000 people who are repeatedly catch, release, repeat in crimes. If we don't take them off our streets, they're going to continue to prey on innocent people. I wonder what I I know New York City and Washington, D.C. are very different because you have your own ability to to rule here, basically. And D.C. uh, is has uh, a situation where Congress can override a bill and 
it sounds like Republic, it sounds like the president might sign a Republican bill to uh, override a new crime bill that the mayor and, and others in D.C. put in place. Do you think that that is the right way to approach it, given what you just said about sort of the mayors having a different job than everybody else? Uh, uh, the, the mayors have a, a unique job. Of, you know, people bump into the mayor, particularly mayor like me on the streets. Yeah, and I should, think, should the federal government stay out of the business of the D.C. government when it comes to crime? Well, that's the, the way our country operates. And, okay. you know, dealing with that is, is not up to me. I have to focus on how do I partner with my state lawmakers and my city council here to show them how imperative it is that we are safe. I want to ask about some comments that you made at an interfaith breakfast mm-hmm. uh, this week. I want our viewers to listen to it. Well, tell me about no separation of church and state. State is the body. Church is the heart. You take the heart out of the body, the body dies. I can't separate my belief because I'm an elected official. You also said you implement policies with a, quote, <clears throat> godlike approach and said, quote, when we took prayers out of schools, guns came into schools. You know that those comments alarmed some people, even some religious religious leaders, rather, who were in the room. A rabbi who was there called it dangerous. Well, uh, listen, let's let's be clear on something. Uh, The last words I said after I was sworn in is, so help me God. On our dollar bill, we have in God we trust. Uh, Every president touched a religious book when they were sworn in. Uh, except for three. Faith is who I am. And anyone who takes those words as stating that I'm going to try to compel people to follow my religion. No, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I believe that wholly. I'm going to follow the law. I'm not going to compel people who believe in whatever faith. It could be if you in a synagogue, a Baptist church, a Buddhist temple, I'm in all of them. And that's what was in my, 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 my service. Just to be clear, do you fundamentally believe in the separation of church and state from a governing standpoint? No. What I believe is that you cannot separate your faith. Government should not interfere with religion and religion should not interfere with government. But I believe my faith right. pushes me forward on how I govern and the but, things that I do. Yeah, understandable. Mm-hmm. But the, one of the fundamentals of the Constitution is a separation of church and state when it comes to governing. When I just asked you that, you said, no, that's going to alarm some people. No, this is what I'm saying. I want to be very clear on this Please. so it won't, yeah, be, won't, exactly. won't be distorted. Government should not interfere with religion. Religion should not interfere with government. That can't happen. And it should never happen. But my faith is how I carry out the practices that I do in the policy, such as helping people who are homeless, such as making sure that we show compassion in what we do in our city. Government should never be in religion. Religion should never be in government. And I hope I'm very clear on that. You are. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Mayor Eric Adams. And a split is emerging in the Republican Party as candidates try to sidestep Donald Trump. Will it work? A possible presidential challenger joins me next. Welcome back to State of the Union. Breaking news this morning, former Maryland Republican Governor Larry Hogan will not run for president. He says he wants to avoid a pileup in the GOP race for president that would end up benefiting 
Donald Trump. Joining me now is former Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas. Thank you so much for joining me. So let's get straight to the news. Uh, your friend and uh, sort of fellow former Republican and fellow anti-Trump Republican uh, Larry Hogan saying that he's not going to run. What's your response? Well, Larry Hogan is a star. Uh, he's uh, governed well in Maryland, elected in a blue state. Uh, I think the fact that uh, he indicates he's going to continue to fight in the Republican Party for uh, uh, alternatives to Donald Trump and a new direction is a good sign. He did say he wanted to avoid a multi-car pileup. I got a kick out of that reference. And I actually uh, think that more voices right now in opposition or providing an alternative to Donald Trump is the best thing in the right direction. So uh, hats off to uh, uh, Larry for what he's done, what he's contributed. I'm glad he will continue to do so. So you think more voices speaking out against Donald Trump is the right way to go. Are you going to run? March is a message month. I want to continue to talk about having a consistent conservative message out there. We need to have alternatives again to Donald Trump. We don't need to be led by arrogance and revenge in the future. We need to be led by those that are problem solving, uh, that uh, want to stick with the principles of our party and unite us together. And so that's the message in March. April is a decision time. Uh, so we will uh, stick with that plan. I just want to ask you what you just said was interesting, that you disagree with Larry Hogan on the notion of too many people uh, being out there actually helps Donald Trump. Why is he wrong? I mean, that's exactly how Donald Trump became the nominee in 2016. He had so many people running against him. They split the vote and he ran away with it. Uh, that's right. And we get this question a lot uh, from uh, donors and others, you know, how can we avoid that? Well, this is not 2016. Donald Trump is a known quantity. Uh, he makes his message of revenge clear, uh, and it's different. Uh, for example, the evangelical community. The evangelical community is going to be a key part of the race in 2024, both primary and general election. Uh, they were key in 16, uh, but they're convinced that uh, we need to have a different type of leadership in the future. It should not be someone that's going to appeal to the worst instincts of our country. And so in the early stages, multiple candidates that have an alternative vision to what uh, the former president has is good for our party, good for the debate, good for the upcoming debate that will be in August. And so, sure, that will narrow, and it will probably narrow fairly quickly, we need to have a lot of self-evaluation as you go along, but I think more voices now that provide alternative messages and problem-solving and ideas is good for our party. Well, speaking of alternative messages to Donald Trump, let's, uh, let's talk about that right now because he did speak at CPAC last night. He said he wouldn't even think about dropping out of the race if he was indicted on criminal charges. He also said this. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. What's your reaction to all of that? Well, it's troubling. Uh, first of all, if you want to heal our land, 
and unite our country together, you don't do it by appealing to the angry mob. And that's true whether you're talking about an angry mob from the left or the right. And so uh, that's problematic. And that's where, again, you come back to the community of faith uh, and what uh, kind of leadership do we want? Uh, whenever you're looking at toughness, you want that in reference to foreign policy and, and protecting the interests of the United States. But whenever you're looking at the leader of our country, you don't want him to be engaged in a personal vendetta. And when he talks about vengeance, he's talking about his personal uh, vendettas. And that's not healthy for America. It's certainly not healthy for our party. I want to just quickly ask about uh, the pledge, the notion of you signing a pledge if you do run for president. The RNC chair told me on this program last week she's going to require it. Will you sign it? Well, uh, first of all, I think the goal of what the RNC is trying to do is to avoid a third-party candidate out there. Mm. And again, uh, that would be the threat from Donald Trump. So the motivation uh, is to keep Donald Trump, if he doesn't win the primary, from running as a third-party candidate. And I applaud that. And so if you're going to have a pledge, have it say that, you know, that the candidates mm -hmm. who participate in the debate are not going to run as a third-party candidate, and that would solve that issue. But beyond that, we've never had party loyalty oaths. We've never had those oaths. We did in 2016. They weren't effective. They weren't enforceable. You had candidates who participated in the debate and later didn't support the nominee of the yeah. party. And so I think we need to be real, and that's not helpful. But I do anticipate, if I'm a candidate, to participate in the debate. And I think that's very, very important that we talk about problem-solving ideas through that debate, and that's a, a good opportunity for America to, to meet and introduce themselves to uh, the candidates on the GOP side. But before I let you go, I just you talk about problem-solving ideas. I have to ask about the summit that you hosted on the border crisis uh, and the notion of Republicans did control the House, the Senate, uh, and um, and they controlled the White House for a long time, and they didn't pass a large border security plus immigration reform. Do you think that is really possible given the state of Washington? I know it's a lot to ask you in just a few seconds. Well, the key thing there is that we've always tried before to pass border security with comprehensive immigration reform, and that's how it's been characterized. And so we can't get there for, uh, initially. We have to do simply a straightforward border security bill uh, that should be able to get through Congress in a bipartisan way that puts more resources for the Border Patrol, for our immigration processing, uh, for uh, the security of our country. And so let's do a border security bill first. That should be done now. Uh, and uh, that's where we stop. That's where we start, and that builds faith in the American public that we can have more comprehensive reform once we secure uh, the border itself. Okay. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you, Dana. And we'll talk more about the big news in the Republican primary race. My panel is up next. I didn't want to have a uh, pileup of a bunch of people fighting. Right now you have 
you know, Trump and DeSantis at the top of the field, soaking up all the oxygen, getting all the attention, and then a whole lot of the rest of us in single digits. And uh, the more of them you have, the less chance you have for somebody rising up. Welcome back to State of the Union. Larry Hogan, former Maryland Republican governor, saying that he will not run for president. I want to get straight to my panel to talk about all this. Essie Cup, I'll start with you. He's your kind of Republican. He sure is. So I'm guessing you're not thrilled? Or well, what do you think? Well, he's my kind of Republican in a number of ways. He's very principled, and that uh, perhaps led him to run a foul Trump over the past few years. But he's also my kind of conservative because he's putting himself next, last, second. Um, he realizes it's going to be a crowded field. He realizes that probably advantages Trump. And he's willing to say, it's not my year. I'm going to sit this one out. I don't think you see a lot of that kind of um, courage and also selflessness uh, in today's Republican Party. So it's a loss. It's our loss. But I understand his calculus. And Scott Jennings, what do you make of what Asa Hutchinson said, which is that he said, well, he very much likes Larry Hogan. He doesn't agree with that notion of a pileup at this stage in this year, in this kind of election being a bad thing when it comes to Donald Trump. He says it's different from 2016. Well, you could have a lot of people out there having conversations and, and quasi-campaigning right now. Where the rubber hits the road is when people start casting ballots. And that's what happened in 2016, of course, with the fragmentation of the field. I don't think Governor Hutchison has much of a path uh, to this nomination. Most of these people who are sitting at zero and one percent today have no path. And they don't have a Trump problem. They have a DeSantis problem. When I hear Hogan or see DeSantis or some of these other folks in the low single digits, what I'm wondering is, are they going to be comfortable getting behind a DeSantis if he continues to be the principal alternative to Trump? Or are they going to deem that not good enough? I see some of the never Trump people uh, you know, out there in the world saying even DeSantis is not good enough for them. Well, if you don't want Trump and you don't want DeSantis, what you're really saying is you want a Democrat. And so or you want to reelect Joe Biden. And so um, that's what I'm waiting to find out. I want to, before we continue this conversation, talk about what has been happening this past weekend in the Republican race, the potential Republican race. There were sort of dueling events. One is CPAC with Donald Trump and uh, people sort of who are more aligned with him. And then you had the Club for Growth, which tends to be more focused on tax issues with a whole lot of potential Republican candidates there. Back to CPAC, I just want to play a little uh, bit of a, a sense of what happened on that stage. If you're tired of losing, put your trust in a new generation. We can't become the left, following celebrity leaders with their own brand of identity politics, those with fragile egos who refuse to acknowledge reality. At the end of the day, anyone else will be intimidated, bought off, blackmailed, or ripped to shreds. I alone will never retreat. <laughs> Democratic congressman, you're the only one on this stage, I think, who's been on the ballot, not for president yet. But what do you make as you watch all that? I am so excited that Democrats are once again going to be given the gift of Donald Trump being the Republican nominee for president of the United States. I know that the White House is elated. This is a dream for any Democrat running to flip a House seat or a Democrat running to keep a competitive Senate seat, I see nothing that would suggest that Republicans have learned their lesson. I see a bunch of people planning to enter this race and to give Donald Trump the minimum of 30 to 40 percent that he will need to prevail in a crowded field once again like he did in 2016. And, and I would agree. I mean, um, 
Watching the, the CPAC conference, it was like watching some of the outtakes from the cantina scene in Star Wars. And it would be funny if it weren't so terrifying at times. You know, this is a conference that was being led by a guy who had been credibly accused of grabbing another man's penis without his consent. Um, you Which had he denies. Members of Congress um, calling for denouncing the DOJ and FBI. And you had a speaker saying we need to eradicate transgenderism from public life. Now, substitute Judaism with that. Substitute homosexuality. And everyone, I think, would be up in arms and calling that genocidal language. I'm not sure anyone, no offense to my friend Wondere, should be excited about any of this. This is bad. It's bad for both parties and it's bad for the country. And I don't think anyone with a memory of 2016 should be excited that Donald Trump is on the ballot because anything can happen. And I don't think that Joe Biden is in an untouchable position here. So I think we should take what CPAC and the Trump wing of the party are saying and doing real seriously and consider ways to um, put up candidates that can actually combat this. Um, you know, Asa Hutchinson, no offense to him, he's not one. Um, and we should be sort of lamenting the state of the Republican Party, not looking at it as a political gift to Joe Biden or anyone. Look, it's to, not. To, to, to be sure, nothing is good about the fact that the modern day Republican Party uh, has this person as its standard bearer. But and is you, this but weak? If, but if you believe, right? as, as I believe, that whether the nominee is Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or even Nikki Haley, that that would pose an existential threat to democracy itself, which is what we've seen with the opposition of voting rights and the election denialism and so many other things, then you're happy that Donald Trump will be the easiest person to defeat on that side. You say that now. I, I, I believe we're hearing what's going to happen. It doesn't matter who the Republicans nominate. That person's going to be called everything that they would call Donald Trump, whether it's DeSantis or anybody else. Democrats always do this. George W. Bush, Mitt Romney, John McCain, Donald Trump. They were all monsters. They were all, yep. they were all history's greatest monsters. That's right. And the only good Democrat or the only good Republican, I guess, is a dead or defeated one. Well, let's because talk. that's when the praise starts. Yeah. Liz, but if you, if you Liz, really Liz, believe what you say, then you would be happy about let's the rise start, of Let's start with and, people and guys, who actually let, acknowledge the results of the 2020 yeah, election. Let's let Liz in because she's actually been in yeah, many war and, rooms. And I'm sorry. I, I'm sick and tired of hearing Republicans whine about how we talked about Mitt Romney in 2012. All we did was expose his record in the private sector and talk about how he was too extreme on issues like marriage equality and abortion. That is not calling him a monster. If he has a problem with that, maybe he should have voted. You, let's, guys, positions. let's let's focus on he the future. He was called a monster. As he much as a sexist he monster. Was, he was guys, not guys, let's not talk about. I don't think guys, Let's talk. Let's and, not talk about 2012 <laughs> because we, we have a lot. To look ahead at very, very briefly. So bitter about it. Because <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously, every, a lot of people broke are. America. Yeah. You heard Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, I asked him about what is going on in Washington with this D.C. crime bill, which the president says that he will sign. It's a Republican bill that will do away with a reform that the D.C. city government put in place. Yes. Um, so, well, I didn't hear much from him there, but this is... He didn't want to go there. Right. This is what I will say, is that in a perfect world, D.C. would have statehood. 
We do not live in a perfect world. And so that means when a bill like this comes to the president's desk, he has to judge it on its merits. Like the D.C. mayor, like the D.C. police chief, like the U.S. attorney from D.C., he decided that this was a bad bill because it reduced sentences for violent crimes and uh, gun possession at a time when homicides are on the rise, carjackings are, are on the rise. And I think it's really, really important for Democrats to show we take the issue of crime seriously and we are listening to voters who are screaming from the rooftops that this is a real issue and they don't want to be told it's all in their heads 15, anymore. 15 seconds. Do you agree with that? Look, I, Democrats I, look soft on crime. Is that what the concern I is? I think there have been a number of people who have caused the Democratic Party to look soft on crime. Mm-hmm. This is not one of those situations where I think the White House did the right thing. And the reason is this. You can, as the president has done uniquely, in fact, over the past several uh, several decades, Position yourself as someone who's taking crime very seriously without overriding the popular and duly elected will of the city council. Twelve to one is how they voted. So we're going to have to leave it there. I'm sorry. We'll keep talking about it in the commercial break. He'll tweet about it and tell you (laughs) a controversial new proposal by a Republican presidential contender. The first lady is weighing in exclusively. That's next. In a new interview with my colleague Arlette Sines, First Lady Jill Biden is weighing in on a new GOP campaign proposal. Nikki Haley, one of the Republican candidates, is calling for mental competency tests for those politicians over the age of 75. What do you think about that? Ridiculous. Would your husband ever take one of those? I mean, we haven't even discussed. We would never even discuss something like that. You can watch the full interview tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching. The news continues next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 